You're not going to be able to smell this. Well, I know you can't. If you want to come up after the service, you, you can smell it. But I have in this mortal and pestle that we have in our kitchen that we use some little grains of myrrh. All right? Yeah, the myrrh like in the Bible. Um, you can get anything on Amazon, anything in the world. So myrrh is the resin that comes off of that particular tree and is extracted and dried and is a, I mean, it's kind of an unusual smell to it. And the thing about it is if you crush it, like in this mortal, if you, if you crush it and just, then this, this smell just kind of just explodes out of it. And it's subtle, okay? It's not, it's not real strong. And I'm not really one of these guys that can explain to you verbally what I smell, okay? Some people can do that, you know. I asked Jerome earlier this morning what it smelled like, and you don't even want to know, okay? <laughs> you don't even want to know. Um, it, it was okay. It was just, that was not what I smelled, okay? But I, can, I get it. I mean, there's, there's an aroma coming off of this. Um, and we know that myrrh, of course, is referred to in the Bible, both in life and in death, you know, with the, with the gift of Jesus and then what was brought to anoint him there after he had died on the cross. Myrrh is significant also because the word Smyrna, the city that we look at today that received this letter from John, that, is, that, that root word is myrrh. And scholars tell us that this was probably really significant to the citizens of Smyrna because that city had literally been destroyed hundreds of years before John wrote this letter to the church in Smyrna. The city had been utterly destroyed by enemies and for three or four hundred years set completely desolate. And then it was rebuilt. It was reborn, came back to life. And from what had been crushed, this aroma of life and just all kinds of vitality there in this beautiful city of Smyrna was evident for people to see. So they also say then that when John writes this letter to them that Paul read a minute ago for you, that that idea of Jesus at one point in time being a corpse or being dead and then coming back to life rung true in the hearts of many of those there in Smyrna, in those, in those Christian hearts anyway, recognizing that resurrection that comes through Christ. So, but I want you to think about this in another way. Just as Joel mentioned a minute ago, you know, life coming from ashes, we get this picture in the Bible of Jesus, this root of Jesse coming up out of a stump, out of a stump of death. And this idea that something has to be crushed before the aroma and the beauty of it is really experienced. And we see that today when we think about what in the world is going on when God allows his people to go through hell in some ways. What is God allowing? Why is, why is he allowing his people to go through what this church in Smyrna evidently had experienced and Jesus says you're going to get more of it? What is God's point in that? And I think the myrrh helps us understand that it's in this crushing that the aroma of life comes out. So let's look at it. Turn to your text for just a minute. Let's think about it. Here's a church that, as Paul read a minute ago, is being persecuted. And that's being called out in this letter. According to Open Doors, and I don't know if you read Open Doors, if you subscribe to their newsletter or follow them 
online. They have a publication also. According to Open Doors, and Open Doors reports on, keeps us up to date on persecution around the world. Here's the thing. We call it the persecuted church, right? They just see it as the church. Okay? It's just the church. It's the church in most other places in the world except in the West. And they report on that. According to Open Doors, I was reading it early this morning again just to see how it had changed. They say that there is an average of 13 Christians killed every day. That's 400 a month. Now, just for a second, recognize that that does not include what's going on, for instance, in North Korea, which is the number one persecuting country in the world. Nobody knows what's going on in North Korea. Nobody knows how many Christians are killed in Afghanistan or in Pakistan. Nobody knows how many Christians are killed in many of these countries because those go unreported. We don't know what goes on in Somalia or Libya or places like that. And yet we know that those numbers are just going up and up and up. And this persecution, you know, we see some of it on TV. It comes in the form of bullets. It comes in the form of beheadings. It comes in the form in many Congolese villages of just being butchered with a machete. It also comes, according to Open Doors, even in recent months in places like India, when Christians line up and some of them stay in line for literally days to get COVID help, to get food packages or some kind of relief. And when they get up there only to find out that they are turned away because they are not Hindu. They are turned away because they are known to be Christians. And so the persecution comes not just in bullets, but no bread, no rice, no way to get support when others around you are getting support. It comes in many parts of Africa when their animals, their cattle are stolen or poisoned or killed and their fields are burned in the night because they live in a Christian village. Just just in the last month, in the Republic of Congo, over a hundred Christians have been killed just in the last three and a half weeks by Muslim extremists. It's not the persecuted church, church. It's just the church. And it's highlighted today in this passage that we read. And out of the seven letters that we will read in, in, in Revelation 2 and 3, only two, okay, only two, Smyrna and Philadelphia, Receive only commendation. There's no criticism. There's no judgment. Jesus just commends them for certain things. And I think the reason that there's nothing going on here in the way of criticism by Jesus is because, listen, suffering tends to straighten out the priorities of our lives pretty quickly, doesn't it? Difficulty in our lives gives us many times a laser beam focus. And so the people here in Smyrna are suffering, and they're faithfully walking with Jesus. And they need a word from Jesus of encouragement. They need to know that the price that they are paying is worth the effort. Okay? So that's, that's kind of what we get here. And Jesus' word to them is, here's, it's going to get worse, but it's going to get better. It's going to get worse, but it's going to get better. And you know what? Living in our little southern belt, you know, Bible Belt Southern Town, we we don't have a clue. I don't think we have a clue of what it means to really pay a price to walk with Jesus. 
And yet, Jesus said, if the world hates you, know that it has hated me before it hated you. If you were of the world, the world would love you as its own. But because you are not of the world, I have chosen you out of the world. Therefore, the world hates you. Remember the word that I said to you. The servant is not greater than his master. If they persecuted me, they will persecute you also. And Paul said the same thing to young Timothy. And yet the word says that God has not given us a spirit of fear. And this has been a burden on my heart, really, for, from the time I made the decision to preach through Revelation. I was thinking about this passage because we have been living in a culture of fear for now almost a year. And Christians, too. It's been paralyzing in many ways. And the message of this passage in the book of Revelation is, church, stop being afraid. Be faithful. Stop being afraid. Be faithful. So let's look at it. Paul read it to you. Verse 8 says, To the church, to the angel of the church in Smyrna, write the words of the first and the last who died and came to life. Jesus is the eternal God, is what this verse says. He has defeated death. So, church, stop being afraid. Be faithful. Stop being afraid, he says, because I am the first and the last. I'm the eternal God. We already saw this in chapter 1, and it's repeated again. I am the eternal God over every second of every minute of every hour of every day of every year of all eternity. Amen? I am eternal God over all of that. So nothing transpires in those seconds and minutes and hours and days and years and centuries that I'm not Lord over. I'm I'm not staying awake at night worrying about you guys. (laughs) So he's the eternal God. And I've read that passage out of Isaiah 44. I am the first and the last. So later on, two verses later, fear not, don't be afraid. He says it in Isaiah 41. Who has performed and done this, calling the generation from the beginning? I, the Lord, the first and the last, I am he. So these words that are used to describe God alone belong to Jesus. It describes him. He's the eternal God. It says also then that he is the one who literally, the Greek says he was a corpse. He was a corpse. And now he is the king of life, who we saw in chapter 1 holds the keys of death and life. The keys of death and hell. He says, I'm the one who was a corpse. Now I'm the living king. And so church in Smyrna, Christians everywhere, understand, the same Romans you face, I faced. The same Jews you face. I faced the same enemies that persecuted me and killed me are the same ones you face. And I conquered them and death. And because you belong to me, so will you. Church, stop being afraid. Be faithful. Be faithful. And so, as I mentioned earlier, scholars say that folks in Smyrna would have, you know, kind of grabbed hold of this idea of coming back from life coming back from death into life just because of what was going on in their city, which kind of leads us to the next point. Look at at verse 9 there. I know your tribulation and your poverty, but you are rich. And the slander of those who say that they are Jews and are not, but are of the synagogue of Satan, do not fear what you are about to suffer. Behold, the devil is about to throw some of you into prison that you may be tested for 10 days. You will have tribulation. So we have sent mission teams to Smyrna. Did you realize that? 
The only city that received a letter from John, the only of those seven cities that is still in existence, is Smyrna. Except we know it now as Izmir. And it's thriving. There's over three million people living in this. I think it's the third largest city in Turkey. It's a beautiful city. It was then, it is now. What was unusual about Smyrna when it was rebuilt is it was planned. It was a planned city. Streets and thoroughfares and blocks and buildings and places where all the temples and religious places would be. It was planned. It was beautiful. And Christians were worshiping there then and they still are today. The city is still there and it's still thriving. And it is a beautiful city. On one side it's surrounded by mountains and hills. And then it leads out into this beautiful harbor. This harbor that still is used and is, is beautiful. And, and that hill beside them is where it was planned to be all of these temples and all of these religious centers for all of these idols and all of these things. Uh, and so here's the deal. This city was a philosophical center. It was a medical center. It was a religious center. It was arts and everything else going on. It sounds like a lot of our cities. And this church is being persecuted. And there's two main reasons that we kind of see in the text. One... And, and he, I was thinking about this this week as far as Smyrna goes, and you could list a lot of other cities that we know of even today. Smyrna was the kind of city where it was easy to be anything. And because it's easy to be anything, it's hard to be a Christian. It was just a mishmash of you name it. And if you want to worship and serve the only true God and live according to that in the midst of do what you want to do and be who you want to be, it's going to be difficult. So they were being persecuted for that. Smyrna was a center of the worship of the emperor. Smyrna had, had competed with other cities in their day to be the location of the, of the temple of Tiberias, and they won. <laughs> They'd always been close to the Roman government, so they were a free city, self-governing in many ways. So it was dangerous to be a Christian in Smyrna because it was easy to be anything else. And Rodney Stark, in his book about the rise of Christianity, said every major city had at least 10 or 15 temples to different pagan gods. And that didn't include the little neighborhood gods, literally hundreds of them. So if you're going to serve the one true God in the midst of thousands of others, it's going to be difficult. Secondly, it seems that there was great antagonism toward these Christians from the Jews. And again, it was the same thing Jesus had faced. This church was growing. This little church here was struggling, but it was growing. And many of those scholars tell us that they were bringing into their fold were leaving Judaism. So they were jealous of that. But then also remember that they believed this Jewish carpenter who claimed to be the Messiah, that was blasphemy to the Jews. And so they rejected Jesus and they rejected those who followed him. And notice what Jesus says. First off, he says, I know the tribulation and the persecution that you are facing, but he has it under control. He has it under control. He says, I know your tribulation. He knows every, every, every whiplash, every beating, every refusal of what services or whatever may be going on in town. He knows everything. All right? Remember, the God over every second of every minute of every hour of every day of every year. He knows. He knows. I know your tribulation, he says. Secondly, he says, I know your poverty. 
It's interesting that he would point this out. This was a wealthy city. And he says, I know your poverty, church, and I see it differently than you do. Because he says you are rich. Now, a factor in this poverty came quite, I believe, because of what our brothers and sisters in other countries are experiencing right now. They line up for days to get COVID help and they can't because they're Christians in a Hindu, in a Hindu center or because they're Christians in a Muslim place. And so they're being ostracized and, and refused services. And so here, there's no reason given for us as to why these Christians were poor, but we can suppose that in this marketplace, they were not allowed. We can suppose that in these places of business, they were not allowed to set up their carts and go to the market and do their business. In fact, later on, we will see in Revelation chapter 13 that those who don't have the mark of the beast cannot do business, cannot exchange goods and services. They are excluded from the economy. So we can assume that maybe some of this is going on too. But notice Jesus says, I know that you are rich. You are not poor. You're not. James says this over in James 2.5. Listen, my dear brothers, didn't God choose the poor of this world to be rich in faith and heirs of the kingdom he has promised? And Jesus said this in Matthew 5. Blessed are you, he said. When others revile you and persecute you and say all kinds of slander against you. Rejoice and be glad, he says, for great is your reward in heaven. For so they persecuted the prophets before you. So even though we may not have worldly wealth, Jesus says you are rich in faith. You are rich in your inheritance. You are rich in me. So he sees their poverty and he sees it differently. But notice what he says next. I know the slander that you're experiencing. And he exposes what's behind it. Look at what he says. I know the slander of those who say that they are Jews and are not, but are of the synagogue of Satan. Do not fear what you are about to suffer. Behold, the devil is about to throw some of you into prison, he says down a couple of verses. So in one sense, Jesus says, these people are Jews. They are physical descendants of Abraham. But we understand from a New Testament perspective that it is not blood relationships that give us that identity as God's people. It is our faith in Christ. Paul tells us that in Galatians. He tells us that in Romans. Jesus understood this when he was talking about just seeing the motivation behind what was going on. And be careful here because this has historically been used as a basis for anti-Semitism against the Jews. And it should not be so. It should not be so. Jesus is simply pointing out the motivation behind all evil. He's pointing out the gas that runs the engine. Of that opposition against God and his kingdom and his people. Jesus said this in John 8. Why do you not understand what I say? And he's speaking to the Jews. He's speaking to the religious leaders. It is because you cannot bear to hear my words. You are of your father the devil. And your will is to do your father's desires. He was a murderer from the beginning and does not stand in the truth because there's no truth in him. And when he lies, he speaks out of his own character. For he is a liar and the father of lies. But because I tell you the truth, you do not believe in me. The Jews saw Jesus as some crazy carpenter guy who claimed to be the Messiah. And they killed him for it. And those who followed him stood in no better light. And their synagogue, their places of worship, because they were not worshiping Jesus as God, as the Messiah, who he was. <laughs> well, Jesus said, you're either for me or against me, right? 
There's no gray area in there. And he knows the slander. He knows the lies that are being spoken. And he knows why it's happening and who's behind it. But notice what he says next. I know your tribulation. Do not fear what you're about to suffer. He says, behold, the devil is about to throw you into prison that you may be tested for ten days. For ten days you will have tribulation. Here's the thought that I had in that. I went back to Genesis chapter 50 as Joseph is talking to his brothers. And after their father has died, those brothers are scared to death. Because after their father had died, they were sure that Joseph would exert revenge on them. And he says in Genesis 50, 20, As for you, you meant evil against me, but God meant it for good. It's that simple. You meant it for evil against me, but God meant it for good. And so here the word that is used, the word that Jesus says to these, would be a temptation. It would be a trial. It would be that which would crush and destroy were Satan to have his way. But Jesus said, no, it's a test. It's simply a test. It's what Peter talks about in chapter 1. For a little while, if necessary, you've been grieved by various trials so that the tested genuineness of your faith, more precious than gold that perishes though it is tested by fire, may be found to result in praise and glory and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ. So what the enemy means to tempt us and destroy us, Jesus uses to test us and grow us in our faith. And he says, I know what's coming, church. I know what's coming, I know that you are going to be in trials. You are going to be persecuted. You are going to have difficulty. And I know the motivation behind it. I know the one who is instigating it. And he is going to throw you into prison. But notice that it says, only for a while. (laughs) For ten days you will have tribulation. We're going to see a lot of numbers in Revelation. Okay? A lot of them. Many of them are symbolic. Some of them I still don't have a clue what they mean. Okay? Maybe by then I'll have a little better idea of what I think they mean. But I do believe that this number 10 here is simply symbolic. It's an encouragement because it's going to last longer than 10 days, right? This is going to last longer than 10 24-hour periods. But it is predetermined how long it's going to last. It is a set time how long it's going to last. It is not going to last forever. 10 days. That's not very long in the eternal scope of things, is it? And Jesus is saying, and, and in fact, that same 10 days was the same amount of time that Daniel was tested. Okay, all these references to the Old Testament. Daniel was tested and tempted by Nineveh to worship their idols. The Christians in Smyrna are being tempted by culture and by everything going on around them. And by Satan, to worship idols and compromise their faith. Daniel would not compromise his faith. He was tested for ten days. And here is that same picture. It's predetermined by God. So, are things bad? In places they are. Yes. In places they are, like Jonathan said a second ago. The fact that we're so comfortable, we're, we're not identifying with some of that tribulation in other places. But it's just brothers and sisters in the Congolese jungles. It's, it's, it's only a set period of time. Brothers and sisters in Afghanistan or in China, God's Word says it's not forever. It's only for a certain period of time. He knows. And He has a redeeming purpose behind it, okay? Every trial, every test. Listen, church, 
every virus, every election cycle, every issue at work, every marriage issue, everything that goes on. There is a redeeming purpose behind it in the plans and purposes of God. Amen? Stop being afraid. Be faithful and take Him at His word and trust Him. He is, notice in verse 10, the victorious champion who through suffering, don't don't forget this, every verse we read in Revelation, don't forget, it is through suffering that we conquer. It is the Lamb who was slain who now reigns. That's the path. That's the road before us. Jesus is a victorious champion who overcame through suffering. So stop being afraid. Be faithful. Be faithful unto death, he says in verse 10. So I know that you're persecuted. I know that you are discriminated against, if you will. I know that you cannot do business and that you're in poverty. I know that people slander you. The word literally is blaspheme. I know that people speak things evil against you. And I know that you're going to get thrown into jail. And I know some of you will die. You will die. Be faithful unto death, he says. So they're facing martyrdom. They're facing the sword. They're facing the fire. They're facing the lions. They're facing the arena. And Jesus doesn't stop it. He just says it's going to happen. He doesn't intervene. He doesn't step in and stop their persecution right away. He doesn't step in and change things in the business. He doesn't step in and pull them out of jail. In fact, he says it's going to cost some of you your lives. And in the face of death, don't be afraid. Be faithful. Because I was a corpse and now I'm the king. I'm the first and the last. So, why? Why did he not intervene? I was reading an article about a man named Graham Staines. He came to India in 1965 from Australia. And he immediately just jumped right in and became involved. He was from an independent church, an independent Baptist church, and came to India and he immediately got involved in ministry to the lepers. He got involved at leper colonies and all of that. Um, he married his wife there in India uh, in sometime in the, in the 80s. I didn't see what year it was. And he continued in his ministry. He went village to village to village, preaching the gospel, ministering, serving there. Yesterday, yesterday was the 22nd anniversary of the day that he and his two sons drove into a village for an evangelistic meeting. They spoke that night at the evangelistic meeting and after the meeting went outside and got in their Jeep station wagon to sleep. And during the course of the night in this little Indian village, a hundred people in this radical Hindu mob came and while they were sleeping poured gas all over the Jeep and set it on fire and then would not let them come out of the Jeep. So they found their charred bodies huddled together inside that Jeep when the fire finally died down. All of the riders had just dispersed into the dark. They just disappeared. Timothy was seven. Philip was ten. His wife, Gladys, 
and their 13-year-old daughter sang because he lives at their funeral. And because of that event, every newspaper in India talked about Jesus and the gospel that he died for, the gospel that Graham Staines died for. Every newspaper in India talked about it and still do on the anniversary of that day. One article I read was just from this year. So there is life coming up from that stone. There is a sweet aroma of Christ coming up from that which was crushed there in that Jeep station wagon that night. Many, many years before that, the bishop of Smyrna, Polycarp, you've probably heard of him. He was 86 years old. He had served faithfully in that congregation. He was there when this letter was read. At 86, the policeman came to arrest him. Because he was a Christian. He knew they were coming. He had been warned of it. He could have run away. He didn't. He simply went out of the city and went up to a little farm, it says. And he was just reclining there. He was sleeping at supper time. They came to take him in like a common criminal, it says. And that evening when they found him lying up in his cottage, he said simply, God's will be done. And when they came to arrest him, he asked that, Food and drink be brought to those who arrested him so he could go upstairs and pray before they took him away. And they, he prepared a meal for them. So he was brought before the proconsul, the, re, the recording of this says. And on seeing him standing before him, the proconsul said, Have respect for your old age. Swear by the fortune of Caesar. Repent and say, Down with the atheist. <laughs> And Polycarp looked, and this was going on, it says, in the stadium there in front of the pro-council. And he said, 86 years I have served him, and he has done me no wrong. How can I blaspheme my king and my savior? The pro-council said, I have wild animals here. I will throw you to them if you do not repent. Call them, Polycarp replied. (laughs) It is unthinkable for me to repent from what is good to turn to what is evil. If you despise the animals, he said, I will have you burned. Why are you waiting? Polycarp said, bring on whatever you want. And the accounts tell us that when they tried to nail him into the stake, he refused that and simply said, just God will give me the ability to stay there. And he did. And he perished for his faith. Some accounts say that the wind was so strong that day that the flames were only burning him but not killing him. So a soldier thrust his spear into him and killed him there in the fire. Could Jesus have changed that? Yes. But he didn't. Because through that, that church was encouraged. That church was strengthened. That church is still there. Unlike all the others. Matthew chapter 10, Jesus said, Behold, I am sending you out as sheep in the midst of wolves. So be wise as serpents and innocent as doves. Beware of men, for they will deliver you over to courts and flog you in the synagogues, and you will be dragged before governors and kings for my sake, to bear witness before them and the Gentiles. 
And when they deliver you over, do not be anxious how you are to speak or what you are to say. For what you are to say will be given to you in that hour. The one who endures to the end, he says later on down in verse 22, will be saved. Down three verses later, have no fear of them, he says. Down in verse 39, whoever finds his life will lose it. Whoever loses his life for my sake will find it. Be faithful unto death, Jesus said. Because you will receive the crown of life. That's the victor's crown, okay? Crowns are referred to a lot in the book of Revelation. And here I think that crown is nothing more than the life that Jesus promises us. It's, it's that salvation life. It's the completion of what God has promised to us. Jesus said in Mark 13, You will be hated by all for my name's sake, but the one who endures to the end will be saved. He who has ears, let him hear. Stop being afraid, church. Be faithful. Be faithful. John Stott wrote an article years ago. Why do Christians suffer persecution was the question that was asked to him. And his, he, returned, he, he, he turned that question around. He said, why do Christians not suffer persecution? He was talking about the church in the West. And here's what Stott said. The ugly truth is, is that we tend to avoid suffering by compromise. Our moral standards are often not noticeably higher than the standards of the world. Our lives do not challenge and rebuke unbelievers by their integrity or their purity or their love. Stott says the world sees nothing in us to hate. John MacArthur shares the story in one of his commentaries that I was reading about years ago, before the Soviet Union fell apart, okay? He said, a pastor came up to me at the end of the sermon. He was from the Soviet Union, still under communist rule. He shook my hand and he said, I have read your material in Russian. I have come here and I've experienced your church today. And I just want to tell you, I don't know how you could possibly endure being a pastor in the United States. MacArthur said, what do you mean? He said, I could never be a pastor here. It's so much easier in the Soviet Union. MacArthur said, why would you say that? He said, because your people are caught up in the world and the material things and comfort. And how can you find true commitment? I would far rather pastor in the Soviet Union. I guess being the pastor of a poor I would, excuse me, he said, I would rather be a pastor of a poor, rich church than a rich, poor church. These Smyrna believers, I don't know if that's how you say it, Smyrnaean, Smyrna, okay, that church in Smyrna, they were commended for their persecution, for their suffering, for the way they took that slander, for the way they were ridiculed and persecuted. Jesus commended them, but he had a word for them. Don't be afraid. Continue to be faithful. Tim Cassie, you may have seen Dispatches from the Front. He's the author of a company of heroes. Um, writes a lot about the persecuted church. I want to, This is kind of lengthy. It's just a letter he wrote. I want to share this letter to you. It's interesting because it's a letter to Mr. Abu Bakr al-Baghdadi. He's the, he was... <laughs> Past tense. He's deceased now. He was the caliph of the newfound ISIS community there in Mosul, Iraq. Tim Cassie wrote him a letter. 
He says, Dear Mr. al-Baghdadi, Recently you publicly presented yourself as the caliph, the leader of the new order of the Islamic world. And in your inaugural sermon at the mosque in Mosul, near the ruins of Nineveh, you said, quote, If you see me on the right path, help me. If you see me on the wrong path, advise me and halt me. Kesey wrote, I've given that offer some thought, and I wanted to follow up with you. Your reputation of unbridled terror has contributed to battlefield successes and dramatic territorial gains in Syria and Iraq. And as a result, tens of thousands of Christians have suffered at your hands. And those who could not flee your fury have been forced into servitude. Others have been beheaded and some have been crucified, making a mockery of their agony and making mockery of Jesus the Messiah. So I think it's best that you know you will not succeed. You and your caliphate are destined for failure. And of course, all empires, caliphs, terrors of reign, eventually come to an end. But something else is happening. Another kind of failure in your command over the Islamic world. And that is that Jesus is building his church. And he said even the gates of hell, which sound a lot like Mosul right now, cannot stop its advance. Christ is building the church by gathering worshipers to himself from every tribe and language and people and nation. And that includes many, many among your subjects. From North Africa to Indonesia and many points in between, I've spoken with numbers of formerly committed Muslims who are now joyful Christians. And several of your erstwhile subjects told me that the Islamic terror in the name of Allah was what broke their faith in the only religion they had ever known. And having rejected Islam in their heart, when they heard the gospel, they believed. They told me that the September 11th attack, which your mentor, the late Osama bin Laden, did, first opened their hearts to the loving grace that is in Jesus. And so, Osama bin Laden and his kind have been unwitting agents in the gospel's advance. That's why you cannot win. The gospel will continue to be heard in more and more places in your realm because our king will continue to send his servants there. And these are men and women women who are willing to die, but not like the suicide bombers that you use. The king's servants are not bringing death. They're bringing life. And they're willing to risk everything, driven not by hate, as your servants are, but by the love Jesus demonstrated by dying for us. He goes on, the last paragraph. Some days ago, your sledgehammer-swinging, explosive-detonating disciples destroyed the tomb of the prophet Jonah. The God of Jonah, whose name was first proclaimed there in Nineveh by Jonah, is nothing like the God you claim to kill for. Jonah's God, the only God, showed grace to his enemies in Nineveh. God's mercy would later reach its greatest, deepest, widest expression in his son, Jesus Christ, whose death and resurrection forever secured life for all who come to him, even you, if you would come. May the life-giving Christ, the God of Jonah, have mercy on your people once again. May they turn to him and live. May their ransom voices shout with Jonah, salvation belongs to the Lord. Sincerely, Tim. (laughs) Sometime after that, when special forces tried to take al-Baghdadi, he blew himself up with a suicide vest, killing some of his own children and the people around him. Be faithful unto death, Jesus said. Tim Cassie wrote an article just recently that I read, just, just this week, entitled, Christian, You Cannot Keep Your Life. 
Listen to it just a little bit. Unlike the 9-11 attack, the coronavirus pandemic is truly global, and the fear and sense of vulnerability far more pervasive, open-ended, and oppressive. The virus of fear has spread further and faster than the Wuhan version. And though fear is amorphous, that means there's no boundary to it, okay? Though fear is amorphous, it has hard-edged consequences that everyone reading this has felt in some way. Closed borders, closed businesses, closed schools, cancels flight, quarantines, daily downpour of bad news from the jobs lost and the lives lost. He says we grapple with a whole range of emotions in this current crisis. Fear, anger, frustration, a creeping sense that something has suddenly slipped from our hands that we will never have again. And this is truly the first global pandemic that has come with a smartphone and a built-in engine for instant global communications. And sometimes it's been helpful, sometimes it's quite harmful, especially when the media becomes a feeding trough for fear. So he goes on to say, fear is contagious, but thankfully so is courage. Both are cultivated in the company we keep and in the truths that dominate our thinking. For the Christian, the guardrails of our faith in any situation are God's presence and God's promises, and he will never fail his people. And because of that, we are stronger than we think because of Jesus who is in us, because he is stronger than death. And then he goes on to quote G.K. Chesterton. Well, here's, I'm sorry, let me read one more thing. He says, you can stay healthy, you can exercise, you can wash your hands frequently, you can practice social distancing, you can look both ways before you cross the street, you can do any number of other prudent practices. And the one thing you cannot do is save your own life. You can't keep it. You can only spend it, he says. So spend it well for as long as God gives you. Stop being afraid, church. Be faithful. And I fear for us. I fear for myself. Because all these last many months have shown many of us and taught many of us is if we stay locked up, we'll be okay. And Christian, we cannot save our own lives. If we stay separated, we'll be okay. That is not in our hands to decide. And should God will that things get worse for us in regard to our faith, our fear for our ability to face that persecution, our fear for our, I fear for our ability to face enemies we can see when we are locked up, paralyzed, afraid of what we can't. And I'm not saying be stupid. I'm not saying be careless. I'm not saying that we need to throw caution away. No, none of those things. I'm saying stop being afraid and be faithful. Just trust God's Word. The church exploded and grew in the book of Acts and following that period of time, especially when the pandemics hit, because the Christians were the only one who knew my life is in God's hands. This virus won't take it. It'll be up to God to choose that. So I can be radically and lovingly out there serving my fellow man. And when the pagans leave town, it'll be the Christians who are there to serve and love and heal. It'll be the Christians who are there to receive in those who would come. It's it's throughout history. So this text is not really about a small persecuted church. This text is about Jesus. 
This text is about Jesus who is eternal, the first and the last. This text is about Jesus who is victorious over death. This text is about Jesus who is omniscient. I know your tribulation. I know your suffering. I know what you're facing, he says. I'm sovereign over every bit of it. I'm sovereign over it to the point that it's only for a period of time. I'll decide how long. And until then, stop being afraid and be faithful. And he says, I am gracious to the one who perseveres, to the one who overcomes, to the one who just simply keeps being faithful. I will give the crown of life. You will not taste the second death. That's what we need to be afraid of. We don't need to be afraid of the one who can kill the body, Jesus said. We need to be afraid of the one who can judge and destroy the soul, God alone. Jesus said, I am the resurrection and the life. He who believes in me, though he die, yet shall he live. He who believes in me will never die. Stop being afraid, church. Be faithful. Let's pray. Lord, you tell us, you give us these precious promises here. We see in this little church in Smyrna a picture of faithfulness in the face of all kinds of difficulty. God, raise up that kind of church here. And Father, I'm praying today especially for those who saw Rachel's baptism. Lord, for anyone that sees this or hears it or, Lord, watches it right now. That, Father, this king who overcame death, this king who conquered This king came and laid down his life, and he paid the penalty for our sin. He took on himself the punishment that we deserve. Lord, I pray that anyone who would look at Rachel's baptism and say, I need that newness, I need that washing, I need that forgiveness and that life that comes there. Father, I pray they would turn to Jesus, confessing him as Lord, turning from their sin and trusting him. Father, I pray that you'd do that work. Take away that fear of death that's in that person that might not know Christ. And Father, secondly, I pray you take away that fear of death in your people. Father, we say we believe in Jesus. We say that he is the king. We say that he gives us eternal life. And we seem to be afraid of getting sick, God. We seem to be afraid of so much around us. Lord, give us wisdom to know how to love and be compassionate and be be as careful as we need to be. But God, help us not to be afraid. And I pray that in Jesus' name. Amen.